0: in mind QE is t- deliberately designed to inflate the prices of treasuries and MBS and bring those rates down. So that was the intention of the program. So when folks say, I don't, "You know, QE didn't cause any inflation, they're looking in the wrong place.
1: Welcome to Proven Improbable. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson. Joining us for a conversation is Trey Reich, Senior Portfolio Manager with Sprott USA. Mr. Reich, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you here today to discuss the Fed's impact on peripheral markets. Mr. Reich, the Fed is in the process of implementing a dual policy of rate hikes and balance sheet reduction, which appear to have a duplicitous effect on peripheral markets. What are your thoughts on this dual policy, and what can we expect from Chairman Powell during his tenure?
0: And so I have about hours to answer that question. No, I'm just kidding. The, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of information there. I, I think that uh, Mr. Powell uh, is obviously very capable uh, monetary steward with an enormous amount of experience and uh, great judgment. And I think, you know, he will do a great job. Um, I think he's got some, you know, some difficult parameters to deal with. There is a little bit of a uh, similarity to uh, when Mr. Greenspan Uh, first uh, took over his Fed stewardship uh, in 1987, he actually uh, ascended to the position in in August and uh, tried to uh, show the world that the Fed was sort of on the case and under control. And people may forget, but uh, about a month later, on consecutive days, they actually raised the Fed funds rate on 25 basis points on two consecutive days. And uh, we had had a uh, big backup in 10-year yields, and the S&P had been doing extremely well, and all things looked to be, uh, you know, in really good shape. And of course, uh, we had uh, uh, the fall of, of, of 1987 very soon thereafter. So we have very a lot of similarities. in so far as Mr. Powell has just, uh, you know, taken over, and the market has a tendency to test new chairman, uh, we've had this backup in 10-year yields. Uh, the S&P is doing well. And we have a chairman who seems to be um, focused on showing uh, the market that he is in control. And so we've had these these rate increases. So a lot of similarities there to ponder. Um, I think that Mr. Powell will do, um, you know, as we have written in, in past communications, that uh, the history of Mr. Powell's public statements, and now that the minutes from a lot of these meetings are coming out, you know, the extended transcripts of the, of the meeting. Um, Mr. Powell, uh, since he ascended to the fed has been a fairly reliable critic of Q E programs, especially, you know, towards the Q E three stage. He ended up uh, voting for Q E three as a fed governor and permanent voter because uh, that vote came up in his freshman year. And uh, generally freshmen don't uh, rock the boat too much, but his, um, his public statements uh, and, and the ones that are coming out from these extended transcripts are, you know, he he argued uh, fairly vehemently against the benefit of QE3 asset purchase along the line of reasoning that, you know, the market would always expect more and uh, that we were uh, starting to uh, that the Fed was starting to, uh, you know, encourage uh, risk taking and you know the search for yield, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, now that he has become the Fed chairman and we have these large amounts of debt outstanding, um, I really do believe that he will go as far as he possibly can along the telegraphed lines of the scheduled balance sheet reduction. Um, you know, the Fed announced back in September of this past year that uh, they would roll about $10 billion per month off the balance sheet in Q4 of last year, and then that would increase by $10 billion per month each quarter thereafter, meaning the monthly total in Q1 would be $20 billion, and the monthly total in Q2 would be $30 billion, $40 billion in the third quarter, and then uh, theoretically by the end of this year in the fourth quarter, $50 billion uh, per month. The $50 billion per month, I'm pretty good at math, times three is about $150 billion per quarter or a run rate of $600 billion. Um, Mr. Bernanke was fond of saying that You know every 200 billion or so of qe was equivalent to about a 25 basis point rate cut when it was qe so one would assume that in reverse that equates to something on the order of about a 25 basis point each 200 billion of rolling uh, assets off the fed balance sheet should equate to something like a 25 basis point rate hike so if we are at a 600 billion dollar annual run rate in balance sheet production by the end of the year that would mean that there's 75 basis points of tightening just from the balance sheet reduction and uh, I think everybody by now is fairly aware that the Fed's dot plot on average predicts about four rate cuts in the current year implying two more uh, for the balance of 2018 and another three or four next year and believe it or not another one or two in 2020. So that's the telegraph policy and as I mentioned I think um, Chairman Powell will do, especially given his that he didn't support a lot of the asset purchases originally. I think he will be um, as dedicated as possible to try to follow those policies.
1: Let's discuss how the Fed is or will have an impact on the peripheral markets, beginning with emerging markets, which I like to term as third world economies. Does the Fed fundamentally grasp the dynamics of the situation?
0: Interestingly, um, there was a, an IMF conference uh, that was hosted in Switzerland a couple of months back, at which uh, Chairman Powell was invited to speak on the topic uh, of the impact of uh, Fed policy on uh, other countries and how they can control uh, their own fiscal uh, economies in the environment of. Fed monetary decisions. In other words, you know, can 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 emerging markets and other countries still run their own fiscal policy when the Fed is involved in changing its monetary policy? This gets to the Triffin dilemma, etc., in terms of whether any country can issue the reserve currency for the world because it uh, sets up a situation where internal demand for dola- dollars is not always in sync with external demand for those dollars. So, uh, at this conference, um, uh, Mr. Powell raised a few eyebrows uh, in the, the assertion that monetary policy of the Fed and its impact on the rest of the world is vastly overrated, um, uh, and uh, I think that having watched that tape, it, it it's interesting, it's on the Swiss National Bank website. I would encourage everyone to take a peek because uh, I noticed discernible um, uh, facial expressions of surprise by the other folks on that uh, learned panel, because, uh, quite frankly, Mr. Powell made a few statements that we've felt were were fairly wildly specious claims um, in terms of the lack of impact of what the Fed's done recently on global monetary affairs. So, what Mr. Powell is pointing out is that since you know the late 90s, when emerging markets uh, had one brand of challenges, um, such as you know, being linked to, to, the, uh, to the dollar and not having sufficient foreign exchange reserves. There have been changes and improvements on the governmental level in a lot of emerging markets in relaxing those pegs to the U.S. dollar and building up uh, FX reserves to deal with currency pressures. But what this ignores is that um, debt outstanding in emerging markets has roughly quadrupled um, you know, o- over that time frame, say over the past decade from about $5 trillion to $20 trillion. So while there have been some improvements on the governmental level, um, the actual dollar-denominated debts that are outstanding uh, have continued to spiral upwards. So um, I think that some of the things that Mr. Powell is stating as positive developments are more academic in nature uh, and If we look at uh you know the percentage of you know debt to equity ratios for corporations yes say in the msci country indexes uh the average is way above where it was in the late 1990s Uh, and it's more broadly based so you know brazil turkey china india poland mexico chile argentina south korea taiwan these are all uh, environments or uh, economies that have had an enormous um, increase in debt outstanding, and the dollar-denominated portion of that uh, has recently been estimated by the BIS to be, believe it or not, $11.4 trillion. So if we have $11.4 trillion of dollar-denominated debt overseas, um, about 3.7 of that, by the way, in emerging markets, it is a mathematical certainty that when the Fed starts to tighten, there is going to be uh, a direct... Uh, deleterious effects on the economies uh of emerging markets so um i think the highest um dollar denominated debt to gdp economies are chile at 33 percent turkeys about 22 mexico's 22 not an un- unimportant trading partner in argentina about 20 so in those countries uh, mr powell can say you know anything he wants or claim whatever he wishes but uh, as the fed tightens uh liquidity for dollar funding around the globe there is going to be pronounced pressure in those countries and I think we're starting to see that in recent months
1: let's shift here to global financial institutions you know my first thoughts are bailouts and derivatives what concerns do you see here and what type of response can we expect from the fed
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um, it, it's interesting that the global financial institution uh, issue with respect to Fed tightening has clearly been largely limited to the plight of Deutsche Bank. So what's going on with Deutsche Bank right now is really very different than what's going on with any other global institution. And obviously there's some unique mismanagement issues, you know, at Deutsche Bank. And so I, I think that most investors who don't own Deutsche Bank shares are uh, prone to say, well, you know, I don't own it, so it doesn't affect me. Um, and it hasn't spread to, to these other global financial institutions. Now, what's funny about that is even though you may not own shares of Deutsche Bank, that isn't going to help uh, if Deutsche Bank you know, further hits the skids because Deutsche Bank has a $157 trillion CDS book, which is two times global GDP. So whether you own the shares outright or not, uh, everything that you do own is certainly going to be affected by the status of that uh, derivative book and that's just the cds part of their derivative book um, the other thing that's interesting is if you broaden this analysis to uh, what the basel based financial stability board terms as systemically important banks uh, which is a fairly widely um, used term um, as of oh gosh a couple of weeks ago the percentage of systemically important banks trading more than 20 percent below their recent peaks, which is essence placing them in a bear market, uh, included 41 uh, percent of the total. So um, I won't read the list here, but it, it, it does include things like the Agricultural Bank of China and you know, Mitsubishi Bank of China, Credit Suisse, Prudential. So the list is lengthening uh, rapidly. And, and once again, I think there's a bit of cognitive dissonance to assume uh, that these, these types of dollar liquidity pressures aren't spreading uh, because they are.
1: Let's make the conversation here more US centric focusing on US corporate credits. There's the sophism that corporate balance sheets are in great shape. Let's focus here on companies just listed on the S&P 500. How accurate is the statement?
0: Uh, that's a great question. So, um, we are all aware, I think vaguely, of a Um, you know, thinning uh, in market ranks. We happen to be talking in the middle of the Fang reporting season and, you know, Apple's doing well and Amazon's doing well, Facebook not so much. And we really have narrowed the focus on these massive companies that quite frankly do have a lot of cash. And since everyone's focused on this small group of companies and they have a lot of cash, there is this, you know, conclusion that all companies are in great shape you asked to you know focus on the uh, you know the S&P itself so um all all corporate cash balances uh entirely in the United States measure according to the Fed's Q1 Z1 report at about 2.6 trillion and that is in fact a new all-time high uh, but total corporate debt also is hitting new all-time highs at nine trillion so if we take the 266 and we subtract the nine um actually corporate cash net of debt registered in the first quarter you know once again this is according to the fed not according to trey reich an all-time low of negative 6.4 trillion so a pretty simple uh equation just corporate cash which everybody is focused on 2.6 trillion minus uh you know total debt in the first quarter of this year, registered a new all-time low of negative 6.4 trillion. Um, when you narrow in on the S&P, um, the S&P has about uh, s and the 500 S&P corporations have 1.9 trillion of that uh, 2.66 trillion total that the Fed measures. Uh, and if we look at who owns that 1.9 trillion, the top 25 companies. And the S&P hold 56% of it, and the top 50 hold 68% of it. So that's 50 of 500 have 70% of the cash, and the bottom 250 hold next to no cash. uh, You know, uh, on on the grand scheme of things, so uh, the cash is concentrated in a very small group. Uh, of companies, which of course are the ones that everybody spends most of the time on in this fang type environment that we're living in in the last several quarters. Um, what people aren't focusing on is there's about a trillion and a half now of corporate debt rated junk and another three trillion rated one rung above, um, Not to mention about a trillion in lever loans, which you know we're getting back to almost no covenant protection. So we have about five and a half trillion of hot potato debt, which stands directly exposed to any deterioration in corporate credit trends. So um, of course, we haven't seen a huge surge yet in defaults, but if you look at junk bond yields and um, any other sort of sensitive measure, those are starting to hook back up pretty rapidly.
1: You know, hearing you discuss the number of issuers in the S&P 500 that actually hold cash reminds me of Pareto's law, which also ties into my next question for you, which is U.S. consumer credits. Does the automobile sector remind you of subprime?
0: So um, the automobile renaissance, or at least the, you know, renaissance in in sales and and revenues and earnings of the past three years I think this is fairly well documented has been based on extending uh, you know the length of loans and reaching further down the credit scale for for borrowers. so a larger and larger portion of uh, auto loans are now you know seven years long, believe it or not which is kind of kind of an amazing fact because obviously, no matter what rate you're borrowing at or amortizing after seven years, you're going to have a lot of upside-down vehicles. And so the trend in the most recent two years has been to take that negative equity in cars that are being traded in, both in the used car and the new car market, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I think it's fair to say that somewhere in the 30 40% range of all new car purchases where there is a loan involved in the trade-in, Are underwater, and that uh, equity is being tacked on to the new loan. Um, And obviously, when you had rates at zero-ish percent, you know that type of behavior, while I think it's fairly reckless, is doable because frankly the payments you know remain low. But now that we're you know ratcheting up uh, uh, Fed funds from zero to two, that's that's a really really big difference, a big delta in this type of strategy being um, you know workable and so a lot of this uh, credit has stopped uh, you know being created and if you look at any of these subprime classes in the past two or three years you know they haven't really um, matured uh, you know these credit pools haven't had a long time um, to mature but they're already facing default rates far higher than at the peak of the financial crisis so now total auto credit, is, yeah, roughly a trillion trillion two is obviously much less than the 10 trillion in total mortgage credit at the peak you know of the finance of the uh the real estate boom into the 2007-2008 period so it's about a tenth as large and a lot of the bad credit is um, centered in even smaller areas of that total trillion dollar pool nonetheless it is certainly uh you know this brings up you know another um, another observation, which I, as Stephanie Pomboy uh, at Macromavens first taught me, and that is that a lot of people take solace in the fact that debt service ratios remain low. So, um, you know, broadly speaking, the Fed's debt service ratios take, you know, disposable income, and they aggregate that, and then they take the debt service, uh, you know, required for uh, revolving credit and car loans and uh, um, different measures even take into account, you know, apartment rent, leases, all these things. And so we take uh, debt service ratios aggregately and we look at disposable income and the ratio is very low. In fact, it's near historic lows because A, uh, there has been some growth in income and B, you know, rates are very, very low. The problem with that is that Looking at the intersection of aggregate disposable income and aggregate debt service speaks to precisely no one because one group of Americans has most of the debt and the debt service uh, obligations, and a fairly mutually exclusive group of Americans have most of the income, and they're not the same, so your stress levels that things like you know subprime auto et cetera are going to be you know, much faster and much worse than anything that will ever be uh, telegraphed by looking at things like the aggregate debt service ratios, and I think that's really an important point.
1: You know, a correlation I see, you know, 10, 15 years ago I was buying real estate and there was no income verification, and I'm starting to see that now with uh, auto loans. It's the same Mm -hmm. process that they were using 10, 15 years ago. It seems like we don't learn history repeats itself and that's something I don't ever hear really mentioned there is that again I want to restate that here for our audience is you're actually now able to get loans auto loans in particular with just you know stating your income without verifying that you actually have the income there and that's you know really one of the reasons why we had that uh, catastrophic bubble 10 years ago yeah. now My,
0: our, our our anecdotal uh, evidence i think suggests that the that's all hitting a wall. In other words, the, uh, you know, the loose auto terms and uh, that's in amount, percent of autos that are going out in lease um, type of arrangements, that is, that's really plummeting because, you know, leasing again, works really, really well in a low interest rate environment because the cost of money is really the only cost. And if that's cheap, you know, you can put cars out for lease at really, really attractive rates. And that's really hit a wall as well. And I think uh, there's certainly a lot of evidence that the leasing pools that are coming due this year and next year are going to really take a hit out of bank earnings because, um, you know, the used car market is very soft. And so I think the whole auto thing is literally hitting the wall this year.
1: Hmm. You know, regarding credit card debt, what can you share with us about U.S. personal interest payments?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I. I I think that people forget how quickly rising uh, credit card interest rates affect um, consumer solvency here in the United States. So, you know, when the Fed starts to raise rates, um, Mm -hmm. sometimes we, you know, look at the Fed funds rate as something that once again doesn't really affect, you know, us, um, but it has had obviously an immediate impact on uh, the interest rates charged by credit card companies, which are now up around 15.5%, and there are very, very strong correlations between uh, increasing this rate and, obviously, personal interest payments. But uh, there's an immediate connection, too, to delinquencies of revolving credit. Uh, Once again, it's sort of the peripheral-type stuff um, that gets uh, hit first. For example, uh, the 60-day delinquency rate of subprime auto loans, all lenders, uh, in February of this year hit uh, 5.8%, significantly above the financial crisis peak, uh, which was right around 5%. Um, personal interest payments, uh, non-mortgage, are already at new all-time highs. Um, and I've even noticed and I've put forth uh, a fairly strong correlation to when the Fed started raising interest rates and what's happened with the personal savings rate, which has collapsed uh, in, say, the past six months. So. Um, As these rate hikes start to, um, you know, take hold and things like rising interest rates charged on credit cards, uh, it puts a severe crimp on, uh, you know, the peripheral credit scores of, of U.S. consumers. And I think you're already seeing that in a lot, you know, a lot of different spots. So for Chairman Powell to continue to increase the Fed funds rate, he is going to have to endure... Uh, knowledge of the fact that uh, he is causing an enormous amount of stress in the more challenged portions of the
1: U.S. consumer population. it would be interesting to see how that uh, comes to fruition and what his response will actually be. You know, I, I'd be mm-hmm. remiss if I didn't ask you this, but how will tariffs in a trade war affect the Fed and the portfolios? And can you provide mm-hmm. us with an example?
0: You know, So um, it's interesting, probably the question that I've gotten the most over the last three to four weeks, you know, from reporters, etc. is, you know, why isn't gold doing better? Uh, Because keep in mind, that's what I focus on uh, most of the time. Uh, But there's been this, this view that, you know, given the fact that tariffs are, you know, bad, uh, that gold should be doing better. Um, And I think that frequently with gold, at least people uh, have a tendency to fall into knee-jerk sort of reasoning and while it is true that you know tariffs are bad for global gdp and potentially inflationary you know in the long run etc the immediate impact of tariffs at least in you know this iteration has been commodities have really gotten walloped so really beginning june one with the imposition of the steel and aluminum tariffs by the trump administration the commodity complex sort of uh, started to underperform dramatically. And then I think it was on July 10th in the evening when the Trump administration announced its plans for another $200 billion worth of Chinese goods to have 10% tariffs, which in the last 48 hours, uh, Mr. Uh, President Trump seems to be um, telegraphing a willingness to put 25% tariffs on those $200 billion worth of goods the commodity complex has really you know rolled right off you know brought off right off the map on the 11th of July the morning after those the announcement of those 200 billion and in incremental 10% tariffs uh, that was the worst day for the Bloomberg commodity index since 2014 um, and gold is involved in a lot of the well it's involved in almost every commodity index in fact it's the largest single component of the Bloomberg uh, commodity index at 9.2 percent uh, so there is a sort of a tractor beam pull on gold when the commodity complex is performing as poorly as it has um on that day the 11th after the 10th uh, the evening of the 10th announcement uh you know the average metal in the bloomberg commodity index you know zinc etc was down copper were down you know in excess of three percent oil was down five on that day gold was down one uh, 0.09%. So, one could make the case that gold, in fact, is acting as a store of value, you know, precisely as it should, by being a little bit less volatile than than some of the other commodity components. Um, the, um, uh, you know, the way that a lot of this, you know, can work back to affect, I think, uh, the general markets a lot quicker than people realize. You, you know, you ask for an example. A good example would be that uh, in Mr. Trump's efforts, uh, President Trump's efforts to show he can and will be tough on Russia, uh, there were a a group of um, tariffs introduced on certain Russian oligarchs back in April, um, and the firm that took the biggest brunt of the sanctions that were announced in early April, April 6th, I believe, were on Rusal and its leader, Mr. Dara Pasca, who's a close Putin ally, and Rusal happens to be the world's largest aluminum producer, about a 7% global market share. And I'm sure that Mr. Trump, uh, President Trump's advisors uh, pointed out that this would be a, a good company to target because, you know, by taking 7% of um, global aluminum out of dollar, you know, denominated markets, um, you know, that would, that would be sort of a double whammy to help the impact on domestic producers of aluminum and steel in concert with his with the tariffs that he had already imposed. So, you know, Rusal was chosen. I'm not going into all the details. The bonds promptly, uh, you know, went no bid and the sh- equity in Rusal Hong Kong listed shares collapsed about 72 percent in in, a, in the period of a few weeks. So um, this is an event which clearly didn't get on the Know, radar screen of most domestic investors who are going home every day excited about you know Google and Amazon's new heights. Um, however, Mr. Putin seemed to take offense to the fact that one of uh, Russia's most important corporations and one of his close friends was being targeted, and it turns out that uh, we now know that in April, um, Russia sold uh, a little over half its total treasury holding, $47.5 billion in the month. And we now know that most of the rest of the holding was sold the next month in May. So uh, Russia pretty much liquidated $100 billion worth of treasuries in a two-month period in April. Of course, that was the first time the 10-year yield poked its head above the 3% barrier um, you know, since December 2013. And it's just interesting that in retrospect, you know, that 35 basis point jump in 10-year Treasury yields in April may have had as much to do with uh, perhaps some, some ill-advised, uh, because the Treasury is certainly in the process of reconsidering how draconian they want their Roussel sanctions to be. But it's certainly possible that the Roussel sanctions had as much to do uh, with that, you know, eye-popping jump in 10-year Treasury yields as expectations for economic growth, growth or inflation. So, we're definitely getting to the point where some of these peripheral events are starting to um, have blowback to, you know, very large and important asset classes.
1: Now, if I'm not mistaken, Russia, when they dumped those treasuries, did they not go out into the market and share that they're going to purchase gold?
0: There were some stories that pointed out that the reduction in the treasury holdings, especially the $47.5 billion month, uh, in in comparison to russia's gold holding made gold a larger portion of foreign exchange reserves than treasuries the reason i don't focus on that too much is that anyone who has followed russia closely is aware of the fact that russia has methodically and meticulously added to its gold reserves pretty much every month for the last oh gosh 10 years and certainly in the last three years uh you know very very large and i just read a story this week that you know russian gold holdings are starting to uh rival um uh soviet era holdings in gold so it's such a methodical increase in their gold holdings i think it's a little unfair to say what that 47 and a half billion went to purchase gold you know the portion that they've been directing towards gold accumulation each month remained roughly the same it's just that the cumulative total of the amount of gold on the Russian central bank balance sheet exceeded the treasury total for the first time in a very long time because of the big decline in treasury holdings. Where the rest of the $47.5 billion went, uh, my guess is that it went into sort of a Russian version of, of QE uh, to stabilize uh, bonds of not only Rosal but some of the you know big Russian banks that were under a lot of pressure as well with this threat, uh, you know, that, that Roussel was going to be sort of locked, that you know, anyone who did business with Roussel and U.S. dollars was going to be sanctioned. So um, that put a lot of pressure on the banks, too. And I would bet the lion's share, of that $47.5 billion, went to sort of a, you know, Russian version of QE. Um, you know, the, the Fed took uh, or printed money and directed it at very toxic amounts, you know, Bear Stearns, etc. balance sheets in our uh, first example of QE. And I think that what Russia, you know, more than likely, first of all, we have the advantage of being able to print dollars when we buy toxic assets from the Bear Stearns balance sheet. Uh, Russia obviously doesn't have the uh, latitude to print dollars. So they had to find them to buy and stabilize dollar denominated obligations of these banks keep in mind, aluminum is priced in dollars. So uh, there was a, you know, an order book uh, for Rusal that all of a sudden um, was threatened in terms of, of where those dollars were going to come from. So uh, they had to find the dollars somewhere. And very clearly, uh, the treasury uh, holdings were their biggest pile of dollars. And I believe that's why they were liquidated. And I think the proceeds went um, to stabilize these dollar denominated obligations of banks and Rusal itself. Trey,
1: what keeps you up at night that we don't know about?
0: Ah, boy, asking a gold guy that question, you're likely to get a tidal wave. Um, but I, uh, I really think that the biggest thing that is being missed by consensus and by markets and by the financial media is the amazing degree of inflation that the Fed has miraculously been able to foster in financial assets, at least to date, without causing CPI-type inflation. So I will go to my grave really never understanding how the Fed has been so successful in channeling uh, the inflation uh, that they... Keep in mind, QE is deliberately designed to inflate the prices of treasuries and MBS and bring those rates down. So that was the intention of the program. So when folks say and I don't, you know, QE didn't cause any inflation. They're looking in the wrong place because it was designed to inflate financial asset prices, and it was remarkably successful. And I think, um, you know, when stocks reach highs uh, of the past two to three years, um, you know, a common refrain or explanation is that expanded valuations are rational because of why? Because we have low rates, and now that the Fed is raising rates and Uh, on the long end we seem to be flirting with you know the breakout of this 35 year down channel Um, uh, as you know equity investors are nothing if not flexible and so while uh, we for several years they would cite uh, low interest rates as the reason to justify premium valuations now that rates are rising the common frame is usually well but it won't matter that much and at some point You know, both the short end for what the Fed is doing, and at the long end of what the you know the ten has been doing, this is going to have uh, probably in a very short period of time, overnight, suddenly, whatever you want to call it, a big impact on financial asset prices. And the measure that we look at, which really is an eye-popping measure, is the Fed's own measure of household net worth. So, uh, in the Z1 report, which comes out quarterly, one of the things that the Fed measures. Is household net worth? and uh, it usually gets mentioned with you know GDP and uh, total debt, uh, household net worth. there's you know three or four things that usually get mentioned out of the z one. This is one of them. Well, if we look at the first quarter of two thousand nine household net worth was at fifty four point five trillion, and GDP was at fourteen point one trillion. And if we fast forward nine years to the first quarter of two thousand and eighteen, GDP had increased six trillion from 14 to 20 trillion, and household net worth had increased 46 trillion from' 54 to a little over 100 trillion, 500 uh, percent of GDP for the first time uh, in the history of the United States. So what that means is that for the past nine years, household net worth, or wealth, if you will, in the United States, has been increasing eight times faster than output. GDP for almost a decade and there's a lot of things that I don't know or can't predict but one thing I know for certain is you can't keep increasing wealth eight times faster than output in any society forever so I think that uh, you know that is that household net worth number which is really stocks and bonds and real estate minus debt is is a number to uh, really focus on because um, the increase in short-term rates and uh, flirting with this, you know, 3% level on the 10-year, pretty soon that is going to have a very, very outsized impact uh, on this incredible generation of household net worth or inflated prices of financial asset prices. And I really think it will surprise people uh, how quickly those levels can adjust on the downside.
1: Well, that's already surprising course, to hear that right now. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and how does gold fit into that? Just as a last footnote, well, when financial assets are um, you know, falling, obviously that's a, a time that that you know gold is um, a good store of value or uh, people desire to get a little money out of the financial system. And when that starts to happen, the Fed will, as it did with QE1, QE2, Operation Twist, QE3, uh, the Fed is very likely to respond, uh, maybe not with a QE uh, decision, but some sort of policy. And You know, as they say, sometimes it's the medicine and not the disease, that that will be very gold bullish as well. So uh, both in terms of a downward revaluation of enthusiasm for U.S. financial assets uh, and the resultant rationalization of debt that that will entail, having something that can't default or be debased, like gold, uh, outside the financial system, will all of a sudden look a lot more palatable than it may today.
1: Well, sir, we'd like to thank you for a very comprehensive interview. Last question for you. What did I forget to ask?
0: Well, um, we didn't focus as much on gold as I think sometimes you and I, you know, like to chat about. And, you know, the question in my mind, quite frankly, is with gold here at, you know, 1225, that type of thing, what is, uh, you know, going to change between now and the end of the year that, Has the potential to put a little bit more uh, spunk back in gold markets. And I think the answer is uh, recognition that the Fed is going to uh, change uh, its telegraphed uh, balance sheet policy uh, in terms of that scheduled uh, uptick in balance sheet reduction, uh, you know, 10 billion per month. And it's one thing for me to cite, you know, credit stress and Peripheral stress and emerging markets, but it's very different when the Fed starts to send signals um, that they're concerned about the impacts of their sort of dual policy objectives uh, as well. And in June, uh, at the June FOMC, uh, the Fed increased the rate that it pays on excess commercial reserves. It, it's commonly referred to as the IOER, which is essentially the excess res- reserve interest rate. Uh, they increased that only 20 basis points during an FOMC meeting when they increased Fed funds 25 basis points, which doesn't sound like much. But the reason that they did that is there's already such a growing pressure for commercial banks to find and fund you know, their reserves at the Fed. Keep in mind, when the Fed prints money and buys treasuries from Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein, uh, that money stays on. You know, the, the Fed's balance sheet is excess commercial reserves, and, it's, and everybody's happy. Um, but when we start reducing the Fed's balance sheet, there is, believe it or not, an outsized effect, about one and a half on a decline in commercial banking reserves, which are required, and those don't grow on trees. So we're starting to see um, commercial banks bid up the Fed funds rate, which is essentially the cost of reserves, you know what they pay the Fed, uh, you know, for for borrowing money, uh, at a faster clip than the Fed intends them to do. So, for example, the way we con- the way the Fed controls the Fed funds rate these days is they have a target range. We used to have a specific rate and they would intervene every day. Now there's a target range, which is that 25 basis point spread, and the Fed likes Fed funds the effective Fed funds rate to be right at the midpoint of the target range. Well, a couple of times in early June, because the pressure on commercial bank reserves on funding the required reserves is increasing, the US commercial banks bid up Fed funds to within five basis points of the top end of the Fed's targeted range. If Fed funds trade above the targeted range that the Fed sets, that is somewhere between an embarrassment And a credibility hit to the Fed. You can choose which way you want to look at it. But it's certainly nothing less than an embarrassment, and certainly as much as a credibility uh, shot that the Fed really doesn't have control of Fed funds. So, what they did is they lowered, or they, they, they introduced for the first time ever, a gap between the interest paid on excess commercial reserves and Fed funds itself to try to induce banks to. Um, you know, compete less for that funding source for reserves. So, uh, to me, that's a it's a it sounds wonky. It is wonky, but it's important because it demonstrates that the Fed uh, is cognizant of the fact that by reducing its balance sheet, uh, they are already impacting liquidity in ways that they perhaps didn't perceive. Um, so, I don't I, you know. To me, it's it's pretty obvious that they're not going to get anywhere near the $2 trillion or so that people think that the balance sheet you know, is heading towards. And I've started to read things in recent weeks uh, by uh, noted economists who suggest they may not get that balance sheet below $4 trillion before they abandon balance sheet reduction. Balance sheet reduction, by the way, two date since October is about $179 billion. Uh, So it'll be interesting to watch between now and the end of the year if the Fed is able to stay on track with that telegraph balance sheet reduction. That is the type of event that I think will um, start to sway consensus back uh, you know, to our sort of view that it is not likely that, uh, that uh, rate increase and in balance sheet reduction program that has been telegraphed is going to uh, transpire as advertised, and I think that'll start to put a bid back in the gold market.
1: You know, these are certainly going to be some interesting times under the tenure of Chairman Powell. Uh, you know, Mr. Reich, tell us about your services at Sprott, and if someone listening wants to get more information regarding your work, please share the contact details.
0: Sure. So, uh, Sprott has, I think, the most, I would say without a doubt, the most investor-friendly bullion vehicles in the marketplace. Um, The Sprott physical bullion products, largely gold, but silver and platinum and palladium uh, have a redemption feature which permit uh, investors to uh, turn their shares in individually for the underlying metal. Um, And the other thing that's different about the Sprott bullion products is that they are eligible to U.S. investors for long-term capital gain tax treatment. Some of the competing and leading market leaders there uh, do not have uh, a redemption feature and are not eligible for long term capital gain tax rates, and instead are taxed at the twenty eight percent collectible rate for for bullion and collectibles and coins um, so I think that's a great way for anybody to get started with a bullion investment. We have some products that's brought that are i think uh, uh, smarter ways to look at equity e t f uh, opportunities in both the large and small cap arena and then what I'm focused in, in on is the individually managed uh, separate accounts of of gold miners, um, and we'd be interested in speaking with with anyone about a separately uh, managed, uh, actively managed uh, equity account, uh, if anyone has the interest. My uh, my email is treik at SprottUSA.com, which is t r e i k at SprottUSA.com and uh, anybody can give me a ring if they want to talk about uh, gold equities generally, or some companies in uh, particular, and my phone number is 203-656-2400.
1: And for our listeners to help streamline the emails, uh, please put in the subject line, proven and probable. Last but not least, please visit our website, www.provenandprobable.com, where we interview the most respected names in the natural resource space. You may reach us at contact at provenandprobable.com. Trey Reich of Sprott, USA, thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable.